This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Hello again and welcome to the latest edition of America Changed Forever. I'm your host, Jeff Pegues. Thanks for sticking with us. And once again, we have a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about the latest related to the bipartisan bill on gun violence or to combat gun violence. But what's really been dominating the headlines in Washington recently is the January 6th Select Committee investigating the attack on the Capitol. What was happening in the Trump White House at the time? Leading up to January 6th. You also noted that Mr. Rosen said to Mr. Trump, quote, DOJ can't and won't snap its fingers and change the outcome of the election. How, how did the president respond to that, sir? He responded very quickly and said, essentially, uh, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm just asking you to do is just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Toward the end of the meeting, um, the president again, was getting very agitated, and uh, he said, people tell me I should just get rid of both of you. I should just remove you and um, make a change in the leadership, put Jeff Clark in, maybe something will finally get done. And you know what? There, there was a lot of skepticism out there before the January 6th panel began these public hearings. The first one was in prime time. Might have seemed to be too political for some people who were tuning in. Perhaps it was. I mean, why were they having this hearing in prime time? It's not something that they typically do. But no matter how you feel about that, I think the number was 19 million people watched that total. That's a pretty big number in this day and age of television. If you look at the number of people paying attention to what is coming out of that committee, it seems like the January 6th committee is having an impact. And then, also this past week, we saw DOJ law enforcement activity related to this fake elector scheme, a conspiracy so that's where we're going to begin this edition of America Change Forever. We're going to just have a discussion with someone who did the research. His name is Jonathan Weiner. He is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Law Enforcement. Also, he's an election lawyer. You know, initially, when I was in Paul Woody Woodhall, the producer of this program, as we were trying to think about, okay, who are we going to talk to? Paul sent me this article from the Washington Spectator, and I thought, okay, so this article is a recent article. It was written uh, as we watch these hearings unfold, but no, I looked at the date, and it was written last fall. It was written October 4th, 2021. So what that tells me about Jonathan Weiner is he did his research. He knows what he's talking about. Besides the credentials that I just told you about, he, he, he's looked into what he calls the scheme. Why do you call it a scheme? Well, if you think about what happened on January 6th, it looked at the time like it was an insurrection of a bunch of Trump supporters who didn't accept the results. And it wasn't clear entirely initially why they were doing it, whether it had a purpose or whether it was just an expression of outrage after Trump said 
come to Washington, it will be wild and essentially urge them to riot. But in fact, it was the last act of a series of moves that Donald Trump orchestrated over the fall of 2020. And when I was writing this article in October, the one that had been least paid attention to, and I started writing it last summer as I started seeing clues about what happened, was that it had been a nationally orchestrated campaign to come up with fake electors in order to provide an alternative to the people who actually won. All right. All right. What you just said is important. Fake electors. What does that mean? The Constitution and the and federal election law together um, describe a process by which after the states have decided who's won their election, the people who actually vote for president are the uh, electoral voters. Each state has a certain number of electoral voters, and the winner of the electoral vote count uh, becomes president. And there's a particular process involving secretaries of state and local election officials by which they get selected, and that's for, in every state. Was on the basis of who's won the most votes. In the case of a couple of states, it's done by district, Maine and Nebraska, but every other state, it's done statewide. So what the scheme was, first, let's stop the counting on election night and declare that Trump has won. Well, that didn't work because the election officials under state law had to keep counting the votes until all the votes were counted. And then the second part of the scheme was to declare fraud and by declaring fraud to go to the courts and try to have the courts invalidate the results of the election. That was the second thing. And that didn't, that didn't work. I remember, and, and you sort of talked about this, I remember when President Trump was so upset because early in the night it looked like he was winning. <laughs> he wanted to stop the counting. As ridiculous as that sounds, in this democracy, he actually said that out loud. He did. So let's stop the voting right now while I'm ahead, Mr. Trump says. State election officials say can't do that. And they certify ultimately that Biden has won these critical swing states, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Georgia, Wisconsin. And in these states, the next thing that the uh, Trump campaign and the president did is they declared this is all fraudulent and came up with a wide range of theories of why that might be the case, all of which were rejected by the courts as they went in and sued. And that was the next phase. That didn't work. Well, after that, the very next phase uh, included two different things. First, Trump personally contacted some key state officials, Raffensperger in um Georgia is the one that's best known and said, can't you just change the votes, find me some more votes until I've won? Extraordinary. And there's a grand jury that's investigating that because that looks very much like uh, fraudulent interference with an election in violation of state law, let alone federal law. So there was that to try and influence individual election officials to abandon their duties and to help perpetuate a fraud. But then the next thing, and the one that I focused on in my article, and at the time, very little was known about it, is based on the shards of information available as of last summer and early last fall, it became clear to me that in each of those states, there'd been a group of would-be electors. Sometime they weren't, sometimes these electors weren't even people whose names had ever been on the ballot as Trump representatives who had gotten together at the national capitals on the particular day of December 14th, 2020, when electors are required to vote in their states for presidents. And the people who are required to vote are the ones who represent the candidate who won, so that they certify their candidate. And that's then sent to the vice president and to the Congress to allow the new president, the votes to be counted and the new president to be then sworn in. So what happened, what happened, what happened that day of December 14th? is as a result of a conspiracy involving people from the Trump campaign and people from the White House and the president and some state officials and some of the state electors, uh, fake electors, um, the fake electors, the electors who represented Mr. Trump who had lost in those states, got together, mostly very quietly, 
and sent their names in as if they had won and sent them into Pence's office, to the um, sent them into Congress. So there would be dueling slates of electors. And the idea was if there were dueling slates, then we have a variety of tools we can use to try and interrupt and prevent the Biden uh, electoral uh, votes from being counted. Yeah, and, and, and there's still more to talk about, about, you know, what you call this, this scheme. But at the very least, if those two different sets of electors had been introduced, it would have created even more confusion, uh, even more uncertainty. And in fact, you write, again, last fall, that John Eastman, this attorney who, according to members of Congress and the select committee, had been working with President Trump, he's a former clerk of Clarence Thomas, also had exchanged communications with Ginny Thomas, the Supreme Court justice's wife. So this John Eastman urged Vice President Pence to exclude the electoral votes of any states in which there were disputes over electors. That's what you wrote. That's, that's, what, I, I, that's what I had figured out as of late last summer and early fall had, had happened. What we didn't know then is how much it had been orchestrated by Trump personally and the White House, and a lawyer named Cleta Mitchell, who was uh, very much part of the plan as well. And essentially, it was a scheme to overturn the election, to uh, ignore our Constitution, ignore our system of rule of law, and to create a scenario under which the vice president would reject the votes uh, for Biden, say, there's a dispute over them, so I'm not going to accept them now. And the goal then was to either send it back to the state legislature so the legislatures could change their mind about who had won under something they call, let's call the independent state legislature doctrine, which is a crazy doctrine. But the idea is, is that the state legislatures are the ultimate deciders of who won because they have the right to determine the rules under which electoral votes are cast. And we should spend a couple of minutes on the independent state legislature doctrine because it is truly nuts and we're going an extreme and we're going to see it again, I think, um, in years to come, maybe as soon as 2024. All right. So let, let's get into it. But I'm going to be honest here, Jonathan. I don't want people's eyes to glaze over. You know, just this, just the name alone sort of gives me pause about getting too deep into this. But this is important. This is important. And I'm not exaggerating because the more we learn about what happened, and not only from the January 6th Select Committee, but from others like yourself who've, who've done the research, you put in the work, what happened at the state level, what was happening in the White House was really interesting. The show really wasn't just January 6th and the attack on the Capitol. There was a lot happening behind the scenes. The attack on the Capitol happened in order, uh, as the last act, in order to prevent the counting of the votes, precisely because Pence wasn't going to do it on his own and do what they wanted. Uh, it was done to literally prevent and stop the counting of the electoral votes. Now, in order for the Trump electoral votes to have been in any way legitimate, they would have had to have been uh, um, certified by the state legislature under this crazy doctrine as an alternative to the voters, uh, the votes selected by the voters. Under state laws, whoever wins the most votes, that's where the state's electoral votes go. But under this other crazy doctrine, the idea would be that the state legislature says, no, 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 it's a fraudulent or failed election. We don't like this election. And after the election, we're going to decide because we don't believe we can trust the vote count. So what was critical in order to put any of that into play was to first have allegation after allegation after allegation of fraud by the president and his supporters, none of which were fact-based. They're completely fake. And then to use the fraud claims to try and get the state legislatures to do this. Well, none of them did it. So that was the problem for them. So they sent the fake electors in because they didn't even have a, a slate of electors selected by legislatures, which already would have been improper and would have been substituting politicians deciding 
uh, who's won the state, as opposed to the voters deciding who's won the state. So that was the first idea. Get the politicians to decide instead of the voters, throw out the actual votes. And when that failed, they then went to this: these fake electors will self-certify in order to create doubt. And then there was the effort by Trump and the people around him to try and get the state legislatures called back into session. So Eastman's idea was, all we have to do is slow down the process, not have the vote take place um, on January 6th, stop that process. And when you stop that process, you then can ask for another 10 days, 20 days, whatever, send it back to the state legislatures. Meanwhile, Trump continues to be president and see if the state legislatures will reconsider what the voters did, come up with different winners. And then we kind of go from there, maybe get thrown into the House of Representatives, which had more uh, states controlled by Republicans than than uh, by Democrats, and the House could have voted for Trump. There were a variety of different scenarios that are all being planned for at the same time in order to frustrate the popular vote and allow Trump to continue to be president even though he lost the election. And every time I talk about what happened on January 6th, I often think, well, out loud, how I cannot believe that this happened. It's unbelievable. It, it's it's breathtaking. The facts are, any other country, if this had happened there, we would have been saying, oh, this was a coup attempt. <laughs> but here we kind of dumb it down. No, no, it was a coup attempt? No, that's too harsh. No, it isn't. It, it was a coup attempt. The term that's used in political science is the term auto-coup, A-U-T-O-coup, or self-coup, because at various times in history, Leaders who have lost elections or been prevented from running again by constitutions have put into play things to keep themselves in office. And the term that's used for that, and again, it's happened a variety of times in history in many different countries all over the world, never in the United States, is when the head of a government does that to stay in power. And this was an auto coup generated by, in all of its stages, then President Donald Trump in an effort to stay in power. And uh, people lost their lives as a, re- as a result. And uh, the insurrectionists were treated as if they were criminals um, without any accountability uh, for the people who set them into motion. And the person who set them into motion was Donald Trump through these series of actions, um, and it included lawyers Uh, like Cleta Mitchell and like uh, John Eastman, um, who came up with these schemes about how it might be done. And again, they had more than one scenario they were trying to put into play. If one didn't work, they'd try another, and they tried them all. Well, in, in the insurrectionists, those who have been tried and convicted or have pleaded guilty, and according to the Department of Justice, more than... 800 people have been arrested in connection with the attack on the Capitol. And so, you know, they have a criminal record. Uh, And so according to this Department of Justice, they committed a crime. Again, just the facts. Something else that you wrote about. Again, last fall. It wasn't just about this John Eastman. There were also, well... There was also someone in the Department of Justice. Jeffrey Bossert Clark. Jeffrey Bossert Clark. Now, I don't expect the people listening to this to know who he is. However, when you find out what he allegedly did, you won't forget his name. What did he do? Essentially, he took the scheme developed by people like Miss um, Cleta Mitchell, Trump lawyer, and by John Eastman, Trump uh, lawyer, and said, if President Trump makes me attorney general, um, I'm ha- happy uh, to write the state legislatures in the states that we want to tell them that we're concerned about fraud in their states and to ask them to come back into session to reconsider the certification of the uh, elected uh, electoral votes essentially to uh, reject the popular vote as fraudulent and put in the people 
who would vote for Trump. That was the scheme. Uh, He presented it to his two superiors. He was an acting number three at the Justice Department at the time, basically an environment lawyer for uh, polluters is how he had spent much of his career um, for people in trouble with the EPA. And then he... um, he presented this to the number two and the number one of the Justice Department. They said they'd resign, and a lot of other people would resign if anybody did anything like that. He said, well, if you if you do, uh, or if you don't do what I'm asking, um, I'll be appointed by the president uh, to be attorney general. They said, how have you been talking to the president and the president's people without going through us? You're the number three. And they got very upset with him. And they said, we absolutely will never do anything like this. It's completely inappropriate for the Department of Justice to be telling states uh, that there was, uh, may have been fraud in their elections. That's up to the states to determine, not for the Department of Justice to do. And essentially, they then confronted President Trump and said, we'll resign, and uh, so will a massive number of other Justice Department officials. And uh, the, the, uh, this country will go into chaos, and you'll be discredited, and a lot of other bad things will happen. And at that point, Trump pulled back from appointing Jeffrey Bossert Clark, Attorney General of the United States, with the mission of writing the states that were the swing states, the states I mentioned, Arizona, Georgia, New Mexico, Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and writing to say, oh, by the way, we think your elections may have been fraudulent, interfered with by foreign countries, whatever, come back into session and see if you change your mind about um, who's been elected. That was what Jeffrey Clark did. The record's very clear. We've got it in his own emails and the memos he sent with his emails. There have been profiles in courage, which is a term made famous by former President Kennedy. He wrote a book about profiles in courage. And when I talk about profiles in courage, I mention Vice President Pence, who had he gone along with what you call a scheme, we'd be sitting in a a country that looks a lot different today because of the fallout from his actions had he gone along. But also, and I cover the Department of Justice for CBS News, if you look at what then Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen did as well as acting deputy attorney deputy attorney general Richard Donahue did by standing firm when they were confronted by the former president then president Trump about going along with this plan as we found out during these hearings this past week they stood their ground can you imagine how much courage that takes when you're in the White House and it's a president asking you to do something like that? Well, what he was asking them to do was to throw the country into civil chaos. And what would have followed, certainly there would have been people in the streets on both sides. If the election of the president um, through the Electoral College process on January 6th had been stopped, and delayed for days or weeks. You can just imagine what would have happened to this country. The amount of the risk of uh, popular uh, conflict of people on both sides coming out and engaging in conflict and the whole country being uh, potentially subject to, to riots in any number of places. We would have been in a world of hurt. What they did was incredibly important. But let's spend a moment as to why they were in those jobs at that time. They got into those jobs as a result of a decision taken on December 14, 2020, by Attorney General William Barr to resign. That was the day he notified President Trump of his resignation. That was the very same day that the phony electors voted in those seven states and sent their votes um, into Washington. So the same day that scheme was carried out. And so it's clear to me, given that day of December 14th, that there are important questions to ask former ten- Attorney General Barr about whether he knew about the scheme 
that day and what he did about it and whether his resignation was the result of that scheme. Because what he did was he put people who had never been in these jobs suddenly into these jobs with just days before they had to deal with uh, this president trying to organize his ability to stay in power in violation of the Constitution and the laws of this country and every element of our democracy. What it shows is how fragile this democracy is. It is fragile. People used to always say that, oh, it's fragile. No, it's fragile. And we saw that. We lived that on January 6th. And now we're reliving that with these hearings, which, as I've said before, millions of people are actually watching. They are interested. And according to the pollsters, President Trump's ratings have taken a hit. Now Ron DeSantis is ahead in some of these polls of potential 2024 presidential candidates. So, Jonathan, I, I appreciate your time. I'm going to give you another chance to, to, to talk about, I don't know, to, to respond to what I just said about democracy as someone who served in the State Department. What do you think? I, I was on, on Capitol Hill for 10 years working on election and campaign issues and trying to preserve uh, as much as, as possible, always, of the people's right to decide. And that's fundamental to our system of government. We've been a beacon of hope to the entire world in the, the fact that we've always had one president give way to the next president based on the popular vote. And that's... Um, uh, there was one previous contested election in our history um, in which it was unclear how to uh, allocate electoral votes. Laws were passed after that to make it clearer, but basically it's been one uninterrupted um, respect for um, the, the popular vote after another. And all of that was threatened in the most serious way, ending in the insurrection, but beginning long before that in an organized way in 2020. And the question now is what happens in 2024? We have people running for office uh, this fall uh, for high positions, including governors and secretaries of state in key contested states who are election deniers who contend that Trump legitimately won and there was fraud and who have vowed to do whatever is necessary uh, to make sure that uh, they're able to shape the outcomes in 2024. Indeed, it's been said of one of the candidates, a uh, candidate for governor in Pennsylvania, uh, who had a very direct involvement in a number of the events that we've talked about today, that if he's elected governor, uh, he also chooses the Secretary of State, that the state of Pennsylvania uh, will no longer have the freedom to respect the popular vote because he's going to decide who won regardless. The idea that any one politician could decide who's going to be the next president of the United States and have the popular will disregarded is a very disturbing concept. And the American public, uh, voters, all of us, are going to need to be deeply engaged in 2022 and 2024 to make sure that that doesn't happen and that the popular vote continues to determine uh, the future of our uh, national life together, of our democracy, and that we keep our republic. Jonathan Weiner, thanks for your time. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Welcome back to America Change Forever. I'm Jeff Begay's your host. So let's continue this discussion about what many of you have seen during these televised hearings of the January 6th Select Committee, obviously looking into what some people call this scheme that led up to the January 6th attack at the Capitol. The scheme that they're referring to, according to what we've seen from the select committee itself, as well as what we've heard from others, is this plan to submit fake electors, this plan 
to uh, go with leadership of the Department of Justice that was willing to bend the rules, break the law, depending on who you talk to, to, to change how things were done leading up to January 6th and the certification deadline. So I wanted to talk about where this could be leading. Let's look ahead a little because there are Democrats who are putting pressure not only on the Biden administration, but specifically on the attorney general. They want him to do something. They believe that the former president broke the law, that people around him broke the law. So I want to talk to someone who knows the law. Scott Fredrickson, a friend of mine who I've interviewed numerous times for the CBS Evening News. And so I'm bringing him on America Change Forever. He is a former federal prosecutor, so he knows what he's talking about. Scott, thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure, Jeff, as always. All right. So based on what you've seen thus far... Is there a case here against former President Trump? Well, the short answer to that is yes. Um, the much longer answer, I think, is first big picture. You know, the January 6th committee, I think, has succeeded beyond most everyone's expectations. It's having a much larger impact in a kind of more nonpartisan way than people expected. I think the other thing, though, to the point of whether or not there's a case. And because when I say yes, I think, that I think the fundamentals of a case are there. It doesn't mean a case will be brought or has to be brought. There are a lot of other things that go into that. Namely, is there sufficient evidence? Um, what are the consequences of indicting a former president when you're the attorney general of the administration that defeated that president in the last election? What precedent that set? And how strong a case you know, is it a case capable of uh, persuading a jury to convict someone? Um, but I think a larger picture, and what's interesting here, is I think most people perceive the January 6th committee as focused on the attack on the Capitol. And what's, at least to me, become much clearer is that that's only a piece of it. And in fact, if there's a criminal case here, it the, the attack on the Capitol is maybe just the end result, but the case is really about potential charges against former President Trump of obstruction of Congress in uh, confirming the election of President Biden and uh, and uh, an attempted to fraud the United States and a conspiracy to do that, and that involves all of the efforts, all the conduct that was taken before the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. And that in can include a variety of things because how this case would be charged would be as a conspiracy. Um, and the essence of a conspiracy is an illegal agreement. And here the illegal agreement would be to prevent the confirmation of the, the, uh, uh, the election of President Biden in Congress. Um, and what they do and what the evidence would seem to consist of in my mind would be, you know, a series of things. You mentioned a few of them, but I think it starts with spreading the big lie, you know, that Trump claimed that uh, he had won the election when the January 6th committee has, you know, shown persuasive evidence all coming from inside Republican aides, his attorney, former attorney general, et cetera, that, you know, that was completely fabricated. So the, the president spreading the big lie. That's not a crime. I mean, it's freedom of speech, right? You know, and, and you understand that what the crime charge here is a conspiracy. And so that would be one of the actions taken in support of the conspiracy. So the crime of conspiracy is an illegal agreement to obstruct the congressional confirmation of President Biden. And so uh, the government's evidence would start, would start, I think, by saying first, first they decide to spread the big lie. Then they decide to corrupt the Department of Justice by putting people in there who would support that big lie. 
It would include also that they tried to persuade state officials um, uh, to refuse to count the lawful elector ballots. And it would include um, trying to pressure state officials to support false claims of election fraud when none of that occurred, and then to change those results. And as you mentioned, it would include uh, sending slates of phony electors uh, to Congress to try and obstruct the, uh, the lawful election and confirmation of President Biden. So all of those together. So yes, by itself, claiming a big lie, that's freedom of speech. But when you tie it together as part of a conspiracy to obstruct the lawful confirmation of the president, um, that would be evidence of a conspiracy. And that's a crime. Before we go any further, you were a federal prosecutor. Where did you work? My federal uh, prosecutorial career at the Department of Justice started at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. for the District of Columbia, and I was an assistant U.S. attorney in that office for many years. Um, I also then later uh, became an assistant U.S. attorney across the river in what's called the Eastern District of Virginia in Alexandria, Virginia. These are both federal districts uh, where the U.S. attorney prosecutes all federal crime. Um, I then later uh, was appointed an associate independent counsel uh, or special prosecutor. Um, an independent counsel was that animal created in the wake of Watergate. And of course, that no longer exists now. The statute authorizing that uh, has lapsed. But uh, that was responsible for the independent counsels for whether it be Whitewater or Iron Contra, those things. So I uh, prosecuted uh, uh, in that as an independent counsel exploring corruption at the highest levels. Um, and I later came back as senior counsel to the U.S. Attorney in, in, the, in Washington, D.C. in the U.S. Attorney's Office as well. Um, and since then, I practiced as a defense counsel representing white collar individuals and companies. Um, so, you know, that's my experience. Um, you're absolutely right. Today, credibility is more difficult than ever. Uh, but I think these are fundamental concepts I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm I'm glad you went through, albeit briefly, your resume there. And what I heard is that not only have you worked both sides of the law, but you were a major league federal prosecutor. And you don't have to respond to that. And so I, I bring that up because if you look at what has happened this week and some of this information I confirmed for CBS News, this elevated law enforcement activity across the country wasn't just the FBI, but other federal agents as well, descending on homes or locations connected to people somehow involved, allegedly in this fake elector thing. And in my view, this was the first visual evidence of the Department of Justice building a case and starting from the bottom. Do you agree with that? I totally agree. And in fact, Thursday, um, we just got uh, news that uh, the FBI conducted a search at the residence in Northern Virginia of Jeffrey Clark, who was the former Department of Justice official that, uh, according to news reports, and according to the January 6th investigation, sought to become the attorney general and to uh, had offered his support to President Trump to support his claims of the big lie. And I think that's the most overt um, action by the Department of Justice we've seen to date. I think that's a significant development. So what would come next? Well, there are a lot of things that come next. So um, they've uh, issued subpoenas in the last couple of days to a variety of individuals involved in the effort I outlined, uh, trying to persuade state officials uh, to falsely uh, report uh, uh, that Trump won their state when Biden did uh, to falsify the state electors. So those uh, subpoenas are going out to various individuals involved who are directly involved in that. And they were served in the last few days. Um, that tells me that they are putting together a case based on um, a conspiracy 
to obstruct Congress in the, its official proceedings to confirm the duly elected president um, by taking the acts we, we've talked about, falsifying uh, the results, false, phony state electors, etc. cetera. Um, so uh, the next things, uh, thing that would, would occur is um, I would guess they, I'm sure they have a grand jury. Uh, I should say they do have a grand jury already open because subpoenas emanate from the grand jury. Um, and the next thing would be to put testimony before the grand jury. They may already have done so. I think one thing we should keep in mind is the fact that we haven't seen action from DOJ. It doesn't necessarily mean they haven't been uh, involved in a good deal of investigation. Uh, this department and the attorney general, Merrick Garland, is a con they're consummate professionals. Uh, they are going to abide by DOJ guidelines. They're not going to telegraph or leak what's going on to benefit them. They're going to operate in as much secrecy uh, in an appropriate way as possible. But now we're seeing their investigation becoming evident in the kind of overt actions by the FBI, subpoenas, now a search warrant of a former high-level DOJ uh, official. Um, and that, that speaks volumes, I think. DOJ critics... And you hear them uh, out there in uh, Democratic circles. They say that Merrick Garland is too timid. He's, he's not moving fast enough on these cases. As a major league federal prosecutor, and I like calling you that because I've known you long enough, you know what you're talking about, you have the experience. Do you think that the Department of Justice has been too timid here? Absolutely not. Um, you know, Merrick Garland Garland would be, I guess the term would be a pro's pro. Um, he's a consummate professional. He's going to abide by DOJ. Um, no matter what pressure he receives, either from those who want him to see, take action or those who don't want him to take action, he's going to go by the guidelines uh, under the Department of Justice. Uh, that govern how you conduct an investigation and whether, whether does none of this means he will bring a charge. It's a huge responsibility to consider charging a former president, but uh, he is uh, someone that's going to go by the guidelines, but he's also uh, a top-notch professional, highly experienced. Uh, his uh, deputy, Lisa Monaco, very experienced former federal prosecutor. They're going to go by the books, but they're very experienced. They're going to do it and do it in the right way. Um, and they're not going to yield to pressure from one side or the other. I've covered him in these news conferences where he's made it very clear that he feels like part of his job is taking the politics out of the Department of Justice, that the primary, the, the previous administration injected politics into the Department of Justice way too much. And perhaps we saw some of that this week with the hearings focusing on what was happening at the Department of Justice leading up to January 6th. But does Merrick Garland introduce politics back in the Department of Justice with this investigation? In other words, and I can hear it coming now from some Republicans, is this a witch hunt? Merrick Garland is not introducing politics. He's investigating a former president who may have, and he's not charged yet, but who may have committed a crime or crimes in order to prevent the lawfully elected president to be confirmed in Congress. So that is the nature of the crime he's investigating. He's not introducing politics, but the context is politics, and that's unavoidable. And the decision of whether or not to ultimately charge a president obviously is a highly political decision, but he'll make it based on the evidence and the guidelines in the Department of Justice. So the short answer is that doesn't make him political, even though he's a political appointee. Uh, what Merrick Garland promised to do is reestablish the separation from the White House of the Department of Justice so that any decisions were not made based on pressure from the White House. And you can 
uh, bet your last dollar that he will make that decision without any regard to political considerations. This is the kind of investigation that people in this country will be looking back in the history books and wondering, wow, that happened. January 6th happened in the lead up to January 6th and the, the alleged planning behind the scenes, all that happened. Do you, even with all of your experience, do you look at what's unfolding and is it the kind of case that you want to be a part of? Or are you glad that somebody else is working this investigation? That's a great question. But most importantly, I think you're, you're absolutely right. This is history making. I never thought we'd see something akin to Watergate. But this is Watergate in some ways times 10. And I think the biggest concern is that if these allegations are true, um, we're in, the other evidence shows that we're in danger of of this perhaps being done again in another election. So it is uh, this is the most critical time in our history. Um, I think it's a privilege for anyone involved to be involved in this case. I certainly would, I'd regard it as a privilege if I were involved in it, but it's also going to be the hardest thing because uh, every prosecutor involved in this takes their duty very seriously. There'll be no political prosecutors involved in this and they won't make a decision based on who they like or don't like. They'll make it based on the evidence. And there'll be strong, strong, strong pressure not to do anything because uh, bringing a case like this um, is going to have, you know, uh, the kind of consequences that shake the country to our foundation. So they won't, no one will take this decision lightly. But you can't also be faint of heart. You've got to follow what the evidence is, what the law is, and what your guidelines are. And then, regardless, make your appropriate decision. So history-making, absolutely critical uh, investigation has to be conducted. Um, and I think we all have to you know, hope for the very best for our country as we go through this. You know, and as a journalist, sometimes I, I try to look two or three steps ahead. And in this case, Scott, I don't know if I see in the future a president or should I say a former president facing sedition charges or even in court facing charges that he was part of some plan to submit fake electors. I just don't see it. Do you? It's hard to see. It's, it is hard to imagine. None of us would ever imagine that we would even be discussing this. Um, but, you know, it's been such a revelation as we've watched uh, the January 6th committee uh, put on the evidence it's developed. And I think it's opened so many of uh, so many eyes, even though those of us who are, you know, experienced and I think very early jaundiced. Um, so, I, you know, we may never have expected we would see that, but we're looking at Looking at that kind, those kinds of questions right now. Scott Fredrickson, thanks for your time. It's my pleasure, Jeff, as always. We're going to end this week's broadcast with a look at what happened with gun legislation this past week. No parent should have to go through the grief that parents day after day do. Mass shooting after mass shooting, urban homicide after urban homicide. A lot of people have been working on this issue for the last few weeks, especially intensely. But we finally introduced a, our proposed legislation uh, exactly four weeks after the last terrible shooting in Uvalde, Texas. And so here's the latest. There has been this debate on gun legislation, primarily in the Senate. If you've been listening, you know that I have been skeptical, okay, just skeptical that anything was going to to get done after what happened in Buffalo, after what happened in Uvalde. There was a lot of talk shortly after those mass shootings that, hey, we, we need to enact some sort of gun safety legislation. But we've heard that from members of Congress so many times over the last several years. And I'm one of those people who I covered Newtown and I figured, okay, after that shooting, 
they're going to do something after that shooting. And you know what? Nothing changed. But here we are, all these weeks after the shooting in Uvalde, there was compromise in the Senate. As of this broadcast of America Changed Forever, 15 Republicans, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, joined a unanimous Democratic caucus in voting in favor of gun safety legislation. This time is different. This time, the Democrats came our way and agreed to advance some common sense solutions without rolling back rights for law-abiding citizens. The result is a product I'm proud to support. So that's progress. It's progress. You have to give them their due. Here's what the legislation would do. Offers grants to states for red flag laws and crisis prevention programs. It's, it enhances background checks for young Americans aged 18 to 21. Opening the door to accessing juvenile records. It also toughens penalties for gun trafficking and straw purchases. But you have to give the Senate its due. There was a bipartisan effort toward gun safety. Now, listen. No one is saying that this legislation is enough to stop mass shootings. Hopefully it does. But at least something was done. Something did change. It's just unfortunate that all of those people were shot and killed before there could be bipartisan action on what even Republicans are saying makes sense without trampling on the Second Amendment. For now, that is America Change Forever. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive for the great work that he does and his team does week in and week out, even on vacations. For now, that is how America Change Forever. And I'm your host, Jeff Begates. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.